Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Trojan Venture Podcast. We are here with episode two. Uh, my name is Eric, alongside my friend Vivek. Vivek, how are we doing today? Pretty good, pretty good. Excited to do this podcast. Um, yeah, how's your semester been? It's been good. Uh, nice fall break. It was a good fall break. Did, did you do anything exciting? Uh, I went home, saw the family, so that was fun. Um, but yeah, it was a good time. How about you? Awesome. Uh, I don't think it could be more exciting than our, our guest for today, who I'll introduce in a second. Um, obviously, I don't want to overshadow um, our amazing guest for episode one, Vivek's um, cousin, which was just an amazing episode if you guys haven't checked that out already. Uh, but today, we're going to have on the show Nathan Jones. Uh, Nathan is a proud Morehouse graduate who also received his MBA from the University of Texas. During his time in college, he was a summer analyst to Goldman Sachs, but actually turned down a return offer from Goldman to start his social impact project, the Village Microfund. After college, he held multiple venture positions at Kapoor Capital and ATX Venture Partners. Before his current And before his current role, he was an emerging leaders venture program lead at HBCUVC. Nathan is currently the Investments and Ecosystem Building Associate for the Kapoor Center Investments um, Foundation in Oakland, California. And he's going to be talking about everything, impact investing, entrepreneurship, college, and anything else you'd want to share in between. So I think it, I'm so excited to have him on the podcast. How about you? Super ready, super ready. Let's get him on. All right, let's do it. Hi, Nathan. Uh, welcome to the Trojan Venture Podcast, our uh, episode two. Um, we're so excited to have you on. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for the invite. <laughs> um, again, this is my uh, partner, Vivek, and uh, we're so excited to have you on and uh, learn about your story, what you do, and kind of what motivates you. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so let's just jump into the uh, the first question. You went to Morehouse College, a proud um, graduate of an HBCU. Yeah. Um, if you can remember back all the way back then, what was the reason or what um, motivated you to want to go to Morehouse? And how do you think that experience has kind of shaped your your career? Ah, uh, well, we just had our homecoming for Morehouse uh, just last weekend. So some of the memories are fresh yeah. on my mind. <laughs> Uh, you know, mostly uh, I would kind of boil it down to a strong community. Uh, Morehouse is a historically black college. Uh, so, and it was founded in 1867. So we have this really rich history of, you know, a decade and a half of, uh, Morehouse is all male school. So a dec a, what is that? A century and a half of uh, black male graduates that, uh, are inspirational in, in my opinion. Um, and it really, to me, boiled down to just being in a sense of uh, community uh, with other, you know, uh, young minds uh, that were interested in, in my opinion, all types of things, um, social justice law, the same things that you see at any college. I think uh, some of the binding uh, kind of tissue of the org is, um, you know, it's focused on leaders that have a social justice kind of bent to them. Uh, and uh, that was certainly one of the things that attracted me to the school. Um, and, 
one of the things that I'm uh, most proud of kind of looking back on on the experience and how the school has evolved and continued to do its thing. Pretty awesome. Uh, Vic, do you want any other? Uh... Yeah, I mean, so you started two things in your college years, right? The Village Micro Fund, which is a social impact project, and the Azul Bison, which is a consumer startup. Yeah. So could you like go into each of these things a little bit and maybe talk about your motivation for starting those things? Oh, yeah. Um, Azul Bison, um, I started that with uh, my best friend from uh, high school when we were freshmen. Uh, he ended up going to Howard University in D.C. I was at Morehouse and we had come back to Dallas where we were both from like our first, uh, this must have been like winter break. And, you know, we're exchanging our college experiences, et cetera, and uh, both realized that uh, the cafeterias at both of our schools closed at around 8, 8.30 p.m. And there wasn't a late night menu, uh, but we knew because we were uh, very excited freshmen that there were many people that were still outside uh, that wanted some food. And uh, we convinced uh, one of the resident director type people to let us use the uh, basement uh, of one of the dorm rooms at Howard that had a kitchen. And uh, we, there was somebody that was in my buddy Hakeem's dorm room who uh, was nice with computer science. And he built this kind of like, this like static page where we could take orders and uh, deliver. So it was 2011 and we were, we had a staff of maybe eight or 10 people and we were delivering what we call like super swag sweet tea and tacos all around campus. Um, we eventually got this cease and desist order from Sodexo because they have food exclusivity rights on every campus they work on. Um, but you know, I think the general motivation was um, we wanted to make some money. Uh, it was fun. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, it was, we wanted to figure out a way for people on campus to kind of connect and to be honest with you, extend the fund and make some money, uh, which worked out for about a year and a half. It sounds like a very typical college freshman thing to uh, to come up with. <laughs> yeah, a good start too. <laughs> um, and so we were reading obviously a lot about you and I'd obviously first met you at the kind of the next, uh, the legacy venture happy hour over the summer. And I read that you had worked as a summer analyst for Goldman um, kind of during your junior year, if I have that correct. But Dana actually turned down that return offer to uh, start this this village microphone, as Vivek um, mentioned. Wh why? First of all, what was was it hard to make that decision to turn down that return offer? And how did you how have your expectations changed from the beginning of starting it to to now go into yeah. that? Uh, actually, not that difficult. Uh, we when I was, I'd done a internship my sophomore year and junior year at Goldman and didn't land on the desk that I wanted to be on. So I came back to college after the summer was over and had to make a decision, right? And I, with an entrepreneurial bent, was kind of like, okay, well, if I'm going to take some risk, it's probably much easier to do this at 21 than it will be at any point in the future when I'm and you know more in a routine of you know doing work um so that wasn't a super difficult decision though you know 
friends, family, you know, parents were like, are you sure you're making the right decision here? <laughs> I, I, see, I see my parents echoing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it all worked out. Um, uh, you know, how my expectations changed. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if they've changed a, a whole lot since then. Um, we, I found out this business in 2014. Uh, and then my co-founder, a guy named Dante Miller, I was one year younger than me uh, in my classification. I think we're actually only five days apart in birth. And uh, he joined as co-founder basically as soon as he graduated. And, uh, you know, we, um, the, the overall motivation for Village was, um, I don't know, I think a, a mix of a lot of different stories, right? So I grew up in Dallas, uh, kind of on the southern sector of Dallas, if you will, just more people of color, slight, maybe not slightly, quite a bit lower income than like other parts of Dallas. Uh, and my co-founder Dante is from Greenville or Orangeburg, South, South Carolina, one of the two semi-rural community, right? And I think what most uh, cities on the wrong side of the tracks or rural communities find is that there's not much access to capital. And, you know, if there is access to capital, it traditionally does not go to people of color uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, some of that is historical. Uh, and it's in the policy of our country and our different cities. Uh, some of that is a function of that, right? Because people maybe not didn't get the right opportunities in the 60s or 70s. They don't have wealth and networks to, you know, invest that cash today or you know, a few years ago in those businesses. So I think what we really saw, Dante was a summer intern at Goldman with me. And uh, I think we got enough, uh, you know, uh, we saw enough to say, how do we do something like this, but in low income communities? Uh, which was mainly how do we find businesses that uh, maybe could be doing a little better uh, and how do we find money for them and how do we find someone who cares enough to give us some money to give it to them yeah. and um, for us that was uh, debt-based crowdfunding for us that was uh, debt-based crowdfunding um, so and and that provided a tool for us to connect entrepreneurs that we were working with in low-income neighborhoods to their customers, the people who already cared about uh, their products. Um, some insights that we saw there were, at least in West Atlanta at the time, uh, and spe specifically in the neighborhood that we were working with, um, people wanted, I mean, people want convenience and nice things in their community. They want a local pizza shop. They want local items. Um, but um, I mean, for all those aforementioned reasons, like you have very few small business starts. And uh, we found that if we could just find businesses that were maybe up and running and needed a little bit of help and we could get their kind of business plans together, we could offer that to the community. The community ends up investing. And because they own a portion of this business or, uh, you know, debt or you know, there's an, uh, a feeling of ownership they come back and purchase more items which increases the sales of the business which further secures the loan and yeah. uh, we were 
working on that together for about four or five years from 2014 to 2018. Um, in 2018, I went to business school. Dante stayed on as uh, executive director and has had a tear of growth over the last four years, uh, which I can talk about a lot. Very proud. Of that's that. amazing. But, no. Yeah, that's the OG Village Microfund. Yeah. Um, so like, was the, Mill the Village Microfund, was that, would you say, the jumpstart that got you interested in pursuing impact investing at like Kampoor Center now? Um, could you talk a little bit about how the Village Microfund kind of got you into your current state? Yeah. Uh, I think Village was the first time that I actually tried it out, right? I'd always like been sensitive to uh, impact, I mean, inequalities, right? And I'd always like studied them in school and, you know, was peripheral to them, but I'd never really done anything about it, right? In this way. And uh, so Village was certainly my first entry into that space. Uh, which was great. I mean, it as an entrepreneur, um, you know, you got to do a little bit of everything, right? You're you're doing community organizing, you're doing some partnerships, you're selling, you're, you know, I'm not super technical, but technical enough to uh, mess something up <laughs> or put a small thing together, right? Um, and by by happenstance, I, I met a whole ton of people and got some really great context on like, you know, the other players in the ecosystem. And um, along this kind of journey, we started to do a bunch of pitch competitions. And, you know, we, I don't know if we would consider ourselves a technology platform, probably not today, but in the early days we were doing pitch competitions, which is how I got to meet some folks at Capital and different VC funds and, along the way was kind of able to piece together like, okay, they do this, they do this. I want to do this. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of tried to figure it out along the way. And so just so we, I guess, go very basic for a second. So for our audience, could you explain maybe what the Kapoor Center does? Um, and obviously you said you're kind of the ecosystem building associate of that. So what do they do and how, how are you involved in that? Yeah. Uh, KPOR Center is a family of organizations uh, that have something to do with social justice and technology. Um, it is, um, okay, in the family of organizations, there's kind of an operating foundation, which makes grants to uh, organizations, mostly that, um, uh, a lot of organizations, but I think a, a core of what we do is invest in computer science and STEM education. Um, so how do we uh, help or influence people to pursue computer science education, get degrees, um, join technology companies, and then eventually hopefully start up, start up businesses, right? I think the general thought is that uh, technology is uh, obviously a massive part of our economy and can be a tool for good uh, or for bad. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're trying to influence more people to be uh, in technology, especially people of color to be in technology and to do it for good. Yeah. Um, so is there like a certain reason as to why Kapoor Center focuses on computer science rather than other curriculums? 
Um, I know like you guys kind of focus on the leaky tech pipeline that's on your website. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I know we support a number of other things. Um, like our core kind of area is STEM, um, but maybe I'm not the right person to answer that question because I don't have all the information <laughs> to do there. Well, honesty is always the best. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, There's so, so much going on uh, in the uh, at K4 Center, which is awesome. I mean, like every day I get on a, a call or get introduced to a new person in the organization that's doing, uh, you know, attacking the same problem, but from a different lens, right? Which I think is the whole gist of this. Like my team focuses on investing in ecosystem building, primarily for entrepreneurs, investors, entrepreneurs, investors. Other people have a policy lens. Some people have an education lens. Uh, it's, it's really all over the place. And I think actually one thing that struck me as I was working at Nextply was obviously their managing partner, Ryan Neese, is big into uh, diversity and minority opportunities in C-suite positions, not just like junior level positions. Um, and so what would you say is currently you think the greatest challenge in getting these minority communities into leadership roles in tech? Ooh, that's tough. <laughs> um, biggest challenge. Hmm. Uh, that's tough. Uh, and you know, the way that, um, it kind of to me feels like there you know has to be kind of an ecosystem of support around people and you know when we talk about the leaky tech pipeline in my opinion uh part of what we have to address is the ecosystem around current technology employees right like how people get promoted uh how people uh, the types of projects that people are able to get on uh, the types of kind of internal support networks people are able to uh, tap into, all of those things that help someone uh, kind of retain their job, do well in their job, and, uh, you know, obviously advance in their job. And um, there's bias in all of those processes um, for all of the aforementioned reasons, right? Um, so, I don't know. Can can the can the right answer to this problem be if there are more people in the space? Then, uh, in my opinion, people have um, a better sense of community or better able to figure out the types of um, initiatives that they need to have supported inside of their company. Uh, and uh, with critical mass, uh, the likelihood of those things moving forward is probably a little higher. Um, yeah which presents this kind of chicken and egg type of, you know, issue, um, which in my opinion is why the work of K4 Center and this kind of like holistic approach uh, is so important. Yeah. Um, so like, at least in Kapoor Center or like other venture uh, communities, like how much progress do you think has been made in terms of expanding access for minority communities? Mm. Uh, I would say um, a lot in, how would you say that? Maybe like the, the trend line is 
is very is steep in the past few years but uh like if you zoom out like there's quite a bit of space up there to go right of course yeah <laughs> yeah um I, I i don't think this this whole conversation about diversity and equity and ecosystem building um was even a thing you know 10 years ago right um i forget the actual year but maybe call it 2013 or 14 uh the NAACP uh was asking all of the like large tech companies I guess you call it Fang or something like that uh to present on their like diversity numbers like how many of how many uh like what are your demographics and where are they across like the your organization's leadership right um if you look at that chart uh, when it was published 2014 13, 14, and where it is today, uh, I think those numbers are still the same, <laughs> if not lower, right? And that may be a function of the workforce getting bigger. Um, either way it goes, uh, the proportion of like diverse employees in technology companies has not uh, outpaced the growth of, you know, the actual company, right? Which is what we're kind of hoping for, right? Is that I think what we're hoping for is some type of parity, right? Like if, you know, is that technology companies are representative of the populations uh, in the United States, like by number and ideally by uh, like leadership and like the influence that those people have inside of their organizations. So uh, a lot recently, a lot of growth recently in the space, which uh, is a note to be optimistic on, but, um, material uh changes i'm not quite sure how much <laughs> and you know i think as you said it's only been probably about 10 years the whole diversity kind of notions even come into the public like that's been part of the conversation i do think personally sometimes people think oh well we need diversity just because it's the right thing to do um where that is obviously part of it but the other part is it's actually good for business and I think that's people are driven by money, especially in an industry like this, mm. um, understanding how having more diverse teams leads to better financial outcomes is probably another kind of argument from, I guess it could go back from your experience growing up. It could be from your professional career. What, what sectors is it? Could it be healthcare? Could it be social justice? Do you think is still most in need of new startup ideas in the space, um, especially for minority communities? Oh, uh, all, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many. Yeah, I mean, I, I would generally say all. Um, because, uh, I mean, I think our general like operating thesis is that like if uh, we invest in founders, entrepreneurs, organization builders that are uh, proximate to the problems that they're trying to solve, they're most likely to find like a big, a big problem that everyone has an issue with, which will likely in a perfect world have a, a large market and um, the founder will be, you know, best suited to kind of build something that makes the most sense for, for that community. Um, and 
and I guess in this space, you have to be like bullish on entrepreneurs, but I mean, there are, I mean, the issues are endless across healthcare, social justice, uh, finance, affordability, like land use. I mean, any, if your thought is that like uh, technology uh, can make pretty much our daily interactions with the world a better place um, or that technology touches everything, then uh, technology has this, um, uh, I don't know, ability to like change all of these problems in theory, right? Um, so, so long as there are a ton of issues across all those spaces, um, there are innumerable amount of ideas that like have to be uh, solved from those folks. Um, I don't know if there's any one or two particular sectors. I spend a lot of time um, in like fintech platforms, uh, a lot of stuff that's sometimes similar to Village, sometimes it's accessing credit, sometimes it's uh, the way that uh, money moves through uh, our markets to like more diverse investment managers. Um, it's really all over the place. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you for answering all of our questions. We really appreciate it. And your answers have been amazing. One last question. Um, give us a bold prediction for the venture sector 10 years from now. Oh. <laughs> 10 years from now is what? 20. You uh, can say 2030. Well, yeah. Bold prediction. Mm. Mm. Uh, that's a tough question um we like we like tough questions, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the space is evolving so quickly. Um, there's like, I'm sure y'all are tracking this, a historic amount of like dry powder in venture funds. Uh, I think, you know, in the past like few years, you have a lot of more uh, capital entrepreneurs, people that are trying to use their money to do something with it, right? Uh, for whatever reasons, because we've had this crazy like migration uh, to all these, you know, inland cities. So people have a lot more cash on hand. So they're doing a lot more interesting things with their money. Uh, we're also coming out of a time of historically low rates. Uh, so you have a lot of, uh, in my opinion, uh, corporations and funds uh, that raised a ton of money. And uh, so it's kind of difficult to think about a bold prediction for 2030 because, um it kind of feels to me that we'll have a much higher proportion of uh, obviously venture funds, but also like companies that uh, are held privately. Uh, and like, I'm curious to know like what ramifications that has on like our financial markets. I think we're kind of just in the early stages of the stages of that. Um, diversity in venture, um, we are maybe 
three or four years into all of these, um, you know, online communities um, that have, you know, sprouted up over the pandemic. Um, and you have a ton more diverse individuals that are interested in venture or interested in using money for things. And, um, you know, 10 years from now, all of those people will be, you know, in proper investing seats and how they look at the world and what the types of things that they're interested in investing in, I have no clue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but and part of this is like this generational divide, right? Like uh, between like, uh, I guess they're Gen Z investors if they're like in college and things now. And the way that Gen Z as a population has just grown up is drastically different from the way that I grew up, right? Uh, like the things that uh, students are have been exposed to um, their expectations for work. Uh, I mean, it, it's really a, a whole new world, which I think is extremely exciting. I have no clue. I, I can't even give you a bold prediction for 2030. It'll look, it'll look very different than what it does now uh, for the better, you know? Um, yeah. Well, I, I think you covered a wide swath of things with many things being correct. So I think- yeah, that, that was tough. That's a tough question. I don't know. I think if you asked me this, pre-pandemic, I would give you a bold prediction. But yeah. now I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, you, you know, I don't want to look at this podcast five years from now. Like, yeah, you were you were this way. <laughs> you were that off. <laughs> well, thank you again. It was, it was really great speaking with you. I'm sure um, being at USC, we have so many college students that are looking to create their own stuff and just excited about how they can kind of change the world like through a financial market in terms of like venture and type of that type of thing and i'm i'm so glad that we got to speak with you and thank you for uh, taking the time hey i appreciate that and um you know uh, like i was saying the world is the world has changed and like <laughs> it, it's for the people that um that are willing to take the risk you know so you know you don't um you don't know unless you try it out well, that's a great last quote. Well, thank you again very much. Yeah, thank you all. All right. Bye. All right, see y'all. Oh, that was a great episode. What do you think, Eric? I loved it. I think that he was a really, really interesting guest for a couple of reasons. First off, I think a lot of the things he did in college were super interesting, and they had a big correlation to what he does now. And also... I don't think people really are that aware of impact investing out of some small circles. I think the power of impact investing to like help in terms of social justice initiatives is something that he brought up that I think needs to be highlighted more because I think more people that are interested in social justice and what ways you can help with inequalities and other things would be interested in what someone like Nathan does. Yeah, like, I feel like there's often this connotation with VC that's like, it's out to get, you know, it's out to like be a bad financial monster, whatever. But I feel like the lens that Nathan brought on, which is like impactful investing, that's like, kind of mixes the two and kind of, I think makes a really cool career path for some people that could be interested in both. So I loved it. I thought it was a great episode. I'm excited for episode three, um, getting everything rolling. And it was it was great. And so loved it. Yeah. Can't wait for the next one. All right.
Bye, guys.